Good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. Uh, like Joanna said, my name's Elliot, and we're in a series called The Bloody Bible, and um, we're taking a look at some of the passages in the Bible that make us uncomfortable, and even at times, um, passages that we find offensive, passages that have to do with capital punishment, where we, we find instances where God calls for the death penalty for people violating his law, or passages in the Bible where entire groups of people are destroyed. And oftentimes, as you read these stories, you find God is the one who's he's commanding this destruction. And it faces us, this poses this question to us, what kind of God do we have on our hands? And then obviously we have the whole sacrificial system and all the stuff that goes along with that. And then there's questions of, well, why does it involve blood? And why does that have to be in there? And, and if you sit down and you start reading the Bible for yourself, what you'll find is there's a lot of this stuff in there, and there's a lot of good questions that we need to ask as a result of these passages that we find in the Bible. And coming up with answers um, to the questions that we, we have and kind of coming up with an accurate understanding of what's going on in the Bible is really similar to how you would construct a puzzle. I don't know what your family did around Christmas time, but when I was growing up, my family and I used to, we'd get the puzzles out of the closet, and we'd sit down around the dining room table, and we'd clear it off, and you'd start to construct the puzzle. And you, you know how it works. You start with the picture on the front of the box, and you familiarize yourself with it. And then you start pulling out the pieces, and you construct the outline, and you kind of get the perimeter in place. And then once you've got the outline, then you can take the individual scenes of the puzzle and start to build those, and then they make sense within the bigger outlined within the larger context of what's going on. And this is really the approach that you and I need to take with the difficult questions that we are faced with, with the questions about what kind of God is in the Bible? Why would he have anything to do with capital punishment? Why would he, why would he command the Israelites to go and destroy the Canaanites? What, what kind of God is this that we deal with? That's really the approach that we need to take. We need to start with the outline and then start to build the rest of the puzzle. But one of the challenges that you and I face is we live in a culture and we're a people that we don't really want to sit down and kind of uncover all the facts and consider the big picture. We just want to verbalize our opinion. We're actually in a culture that we really like to go on rants. We like to rant about what we think. I mean, for everything from politics to sports to what we find in the Bible. We really like to voice our opinion. We don't really want to sit down and do the work that it takes to construct the outline or or ask the questions of, okay, well, these pieces, I see these pieces, but then how do these pieces fit in the bigger picture? We just want to verbalize our really strong and emotional opinion about these things. We want to pull one piece out of the box, look at it, and then jump to a conclusion on, okay, well, this is what it must mean, and this is how it fits in the bigger picture without sitting down, doing the work that it takes to come up with an accurate understanding. And then not only do we rant about it, but then we surround our peop- ourselves with people who agree with us, people who think the same way, people who talk the same way, people who have looked at the same piece of the puzzle and come to the same conclusion that we have, people who agree with us. And then if anybody does push back or ask questions or challenges us, then our usual response is to try to try to shut them down. We don't want to hear what they have to say. And you see this happening all over the place in different areas of life. It happens. Christians do this. People that are opposed to God do this. You see this in politics. You see this when people talk about the Lakers and LeBron. I mean, you name it. People have got strong opinions, and they go on their rants, and they don't want to hear anybody challenge their ideas. And so for you and me, if we're going to come to an accurate understanding of what's going on in the Bible, why are these passages in there? Why would God have anything to do with these passages? If we're going to come to a good understanding, we've got to step back and we've got to ask questions and we've got to do the work to figure out, okay, what, how do the pieces of the puzzle actually fit together? What's really going on here? So that's what we're doing in this series. We're stepping back, we're slowing down, 
We're figuring out what in the world do all these pieces of the puzzle have to do with each other. And last week we started this series and we did some really important work. Last week we, we really, we constructed the outline of the puzzle. And the outline of the puzzle is shaped by God's character. You've got to get God's character in place. When you understand who God is, that he is a He's a holy and he's a merciful God. He's a holy God, so that means he's righteous. Everything he does is right. He's also a just God. Because of his holiness, whenever he takes action, it's always in line with the way that it should be. But he's also a merciful God. He's not just holy and righteous and just. He's also a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. Once we get that kind of outline in place, then the other individual pieces start to make sense. So we start with the outline of God's character, And then we shift our attention to other individual pieces in the puzzle. And today, we're going to explore some of the pieces of the puzzle that are pieces that make us uncomfortable. And even at times, we find offensive. They're the pieces that have to do with the punishments we find in the Bible. So to warm us up, to get us started, I'm going to read a sampling of some of the punishments that we find in the Old Testament, and then we're going to talk about them and see what in the world would a good and loving God have to do with all these punishments. So let's start in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24. This is what it says. It says, Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse, so they brought him to Moses. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Another example, Numbers chapter 15 says this. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron in the whole assembly. And they kept him in custody because it was not clear what, they sh- what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Another example, Deuteronomy 21. It says, If someone has a stubborn, rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. All right, now that we're all thoroughly uncomfortable that this is included in the Bible, let's see if we can discover what's going on. Let's start to put the individual pieces of the puzzle together. And again, we're trying to figure out what in the world would a good and loving God have to do with these punishments. And we're going to do this by answering a series of questions. And we're going to start with the question, why are there punishments? Just generally speaking, why are there punishments? Any kind of punishment. Punishments from all the way down, really small punishments to the bigger ones, the ones that that make the news and get our attention. Why are there punishments? Well, for me, being a parent has actually changed my thinking on this whole discussion. My wife and I, we've got three kids. Our older kids are four and two and a half. And something that I've realized is that my wife and I, if it wasn't for us putting boundaries in place and then communicating why those boundaries are there, helping it make sense to our children, and then enforcing those boundaries, I really don't think my kids would make it. And that's not a knock against my kids. I mean, that's just kind of a statement of fact. I mean, my kids, 
they have no idea what's edible and what's not edible. I mean, I was going to tell you a story about Cohen eating a seashell at the beach, but then yesterday we were on a walk, and no joke, we're on a walk, and he's behind us, and I turn just to say, hey, come on, Cohen, catch up, and he's got a leaf in his mouth, and right as I turn around, he just takes a chunk out of it and starts chewing on it. I'm like, Cohen, what are you doing? And then later on the walk, no joke, we're walking, and there's a tree with leaves in it, and he starts jumping under it, and he's like, eat them. Yeah, I'm like, Cohen, you can't eat leaves. You know, there's another time, Olivia, our older daughter, we're at the beach, we take a family photo, we get home, you know, you're scrolling through your phone, looking at the photos, and we realize that Olivia has a piece of kelp in her hand, and during the photo, you see it, you know, because it's one of those, you know, like snaps, like a lot of pictures at the same time, you see her put it in her mouth and then take a chunk out of it. It's like, you can't eat that stuff, Olivia, and that's just how kids are. I mean, they, they don't know better. They'll, they'll touch anything, they'll climb on anything, they'll stick a fork in anything. And so as a parent, especially a parent of toddlers, you over and over again, it feels like all you say is, no, stop, don't do that, don't touch that, don't eat that, don't climb on that, don't pick that up. And just again and again and again, it feels like as a parent, you've just got that on repeat. And it might just be my kids, but something that I've noticed, I guess it's not my kids, is my kids don't think no means no. And they don't think stop means stop. I think sometimes my, my son thinks it's a dare. You know, it's like, Cohen, don't eat that. Oh, I'll eat it. No, don't eat that. Dad, I'm going to eat it. It's like, it's like, no, like when I say no, it means no, don't do it. When I say stop, it means stop. My kids don't think that. So not only there, do there need to be boundaries between good and bad, right and wrong, safe and dangerous. Not only do we need to have these boundaries, but then there needs to be consequences for when the kids step over the line, when they violate those boundaries. There needs to be consequences. And again, I don't know if it's just my kids, but you put the, you put the boundary in place and you say, hey, don't cross this. Well, what do they do? They push it and they test it. And they're saying, okay, how serious are you about this? Are you going to actually enforce this? So as a parent, not only do you have to put it in place and explain why it's there, but then again and again and again, you've got to be willing to enforce that line and say that line's there for a reason. It's actually for your good. There's got to be some kind of consequence when they cross the line. You have boundaries with a two-year-old and you enforce those boundaries because otherwise they're not going to make it. So the simple answer to the question of why is there punishments is we live in reality. I mean, we live in reality. The boundaries that parents establish are to help the child understand reality. And there, there's dangers in the real world. This is just a fact. I mean, it's dangerous for a toddler to go running through a parking lot. There can be severe consequences if a toddler does that. So what the parent does is the parent draws the line and then has some kind of consequence in place if the toddler crosses that line to wake them up to the reality that there are dangers in this world before, through their actions, they discover those dangers on their own. The parent draws the line and then has some kind of consequence for the child before the child goes out and just discovers this danger for themselves. Again, we, we have these simply because we live in reality and we want the, the child or the children to understand how serious the dangers are. And another thing that's important for us to realize is the world we live in, it's not just the physical world, it's actually a spiritual world. And that means that there's not just physical dangers that we face, we also face spiritual dangers. That's why the Bible, when it describes us, it says we are made in God's image. That means part of what it means to be made in God's image is God gave us a soul. So we're not just physical beings, 
with flesh and blood, we're also spiritual beings. So it's not just physical dangers that we face. There's also, there's also spiritual dangers. There's also spiritual reality that we've got to be aware of. But this is something in our modern world that we work really hard to ignore. We work really hard to ignore this. So we either act like the spiritual realm either doesn't exist, and it's just, you know, stuff of fairy tales or myth and legend, and, you know, it makes for good stories, but it's not real. We either act like that, or we think that, okay, well, if the spiritual realm does exist, well, then it must be benign. There's really no danger. No harm can come for not taking the spiritual realm seriously. So as parents, what we'll do is, is we, re- we work really hard to keep our kids from running out in traffic, and we communicate with them that, hey, there can be real big f- physical consequences if you run out in traffic. But then we don't teach them the spiritual reality of taking God seriously. We don't teach them the dangers of what could happen if you ignore what God has to say on some really important topics. And as you read through the Old Testament, what you find is this is what's going on with the nation of Israel. You read through these punishments and the rest of the stories in the Old Testament, and you find that God is he's raising up a people. He's taking this group of people who they were wanderers, they were disconnected, they came from very pagan and immoral backgrounds, they had no idea how to follow God, they didn't know what God's standards were, and he's bringing them together and he's forming them into a people. I mean, just in moral and spiritual terms, they didn't know right from wrong, they didn't know safe from dangerous, they didn't know good from bad, which meant that a lot of rules needed to be put in place, they needed to be communicated, this is why this is here, this is why this is important, And then there needed to be consequences for breaking those rules. The reason for all the laws and the punishment in the Bible is because God was training his people. Just like you're training a toddler. You're teaching them this is what reality is. This is how life works. God was doing the same thing through the Bible. He was revealing to them the standard he had set. Very similar to raising a toddler. They have to be taught everything. Now, you're probably still asking, even if you agree with, okay, why are there punishments? Okay, we live in reality. You're probably still asking, yeah, but why so severe? Because, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, just like taking their favorite toy away or a grounding or a timeout or something like that. We're talking about the death penalty. And the death penalty for stuff that you and I might do on a regular basis. So why are the punishments that we find in the Bible, why are they so severe? Well, again, back to parenting, as parents, what is it, th- what is it that we have consequences for? What is it that we discipline for? Is it for mistakes or is it for willful disobedience? I mean, is it when a nine-month-old or a one-year-old who's just learning to use utensils is sitting at the table and you give them their food and they get more on themselves and on the floor than in their mouth? Is there a discipline for that? No, that's expected. That's what kids do. But what about when it's, what about when it's a six-year-old? who's been taught their manners and knows that, okay, when we sit down at the table, we try our food. And even if you don't like it, you've got to at least try it. But they sit down at the dinner table and they see what you've put before them and they go, oh, yuck, I'm not eating that. And then they pick up the plate, they hold it over the floor, and they drop it. What, what are the, yeah, see, so you guys are gasping. You guys know, I mean, what are the consequences for? And we all know it's for the willful acts of disobedience. That's what parents have consequences for. And we also know then when it comes to consequences, the punishment needs to fit the crime. So the more intentional the rebellion and the disobedience, then the more severe the consequence needs to be. And it's not just in family life where we do this. 
Actually, our legal system is set up this way. I mean, just think about the consequences for a DUI. I mean, if you decide to get behind the wheel of a car and you're on something, the consequences can be pretty severe. I mean, you don't have to run any red lights. You don't have to hit anybody. But if you get pulled over and you're under the influence, I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars in fines. Your license could be taken away. Depending on how many offenses it is, you could serve jail time. I mean, pretty severe consequences. Didn't hurt anybody. I mean, you didn't cause any damage to anything. Why are the consequences so severe? Well, it's because we rightfully know in our society what that behavior could lead to. We know that if somebody gets behind the wheel of a car and they're intoxicated or on something, we know that the damage not only to themselves, but they're putting the lives of others at risk. They're putting the property of others at risk. So we know that it's not just about the individual, but it's the impacts that this could have on the people around them. We understand this. Our, our legal system is set up this way. That's why if you get accused of a crime and you go to court, the court file is going to read the accused versus the people. I mean, yeah, there's, there's victims that are involved. Yeah, there's, there's property that was damaged. But our court file, because we recognize that, that the real crime is against the society that put those laws in place. It's not just about the individual who, well, they didn't hurt anybody. I mean, it can't be that bad. Well, we recognize, no, this is there for a good reason. And it's actually not just about the victims or the property. It's about the society who put those laws in place. This is why if somebody's sentenced, what language do we use? We say they're paying their debt to who? To society. We recognize this. We recognize that it's more than just the individual and what they've done. Their actions create a ripple effect that affect the group as a whole. This, again, this is a very similar thing to what you see going on in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. As you read through these examples, I mean, I started out and I read through those three examples where the death penalty is called for. If you, if you go and you study the punishments in the Old Testament and you figure out, okay, why was this put there? What was the reason that God would say this? Why is this important? You start to add it up and study it, and what you realize is the attitude behind those actions it was an attitude to willingly disobey what God had said. They knew what God had said, and instead of doing it, they decided, I'm going to ignore what God said on this topic. Their actions that didn't just bring consequences for the perpetrator, but they brought consequences for the community as a whole. They were actions that if they went unaddressed, they would be uniquely damaging to the community. They were acts of willful disobedience that if they went unaddressed, they would bring consequences to the whole community for generations to come. That's what you see going on. So why so severe? Well, they are acts of willful disobedience, uniquely damaging to the community. And we all know the more intentional the rebellion and disobedience, the greater the consequence. But that brings us to a third question that we've got to ask, and that is, who determines if the punishment matches the crime? So we agree, okay, there's, there should be punishments. Okay, why so severe? Okay, there's different degrees, but who determines if the punishment matches the crime? Who determines if the punishment is appropriate for the crime? Well, if a, if a child, out of anger, bites their sibling, it's the parent who determines what the appropriate response is supposed to be. The parent has the rightful authority over that child to determine, okay, how should we respond to this act of aggression towards their sibling out of anger? You know, if, if an individual goes and gets behind the wheel of a car and they're drunk, 
It's the civil authorities who they get to decide, should it be several thousand dollars? Should it be jail time? Should they lose their license? For how long should they lose their license? Should they lose it permanently? It's the appropriate authorities who are supposed to do this. We understand this. But what the Bible teaches is behind all the authority that we see, behind the parents, behind the civil authorities, behind all that ultimately is God. God's the ultimate authority. He's the one who, he sets the standard between what is right and wrong. He determines this is good and this is bad. This is safe and this is dangerous. This is, this is what the Bible says about this. Very first verse of the Bible, very foundational verse to understanding this. It says this in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is so fundamental to understanding reality. Another verse on this topic, Psalm 100, verse 3, it says this. It says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. The idea is, if you create it, you own it. If you own it, you get to make the final call. So we know, okay, the, the, the rightful authority is the one who gets to determine if the punishment matches the crime. Well, what the Bible teaches is God is the ultimate authority. He has the final say. He's the one who says, okay, this is the line between right and wrong. This is the standard for you guys to live by. He's the one who sets it, and then he's the one that gets to enforce it. But let's face it, when God actually does enforce it, when he carries out a punishment, we get really upset. We do, especially if it has to do with us. If it has to do with other people, you know, it's like my older ki- my kids. One of my kids, you know, if, 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 if one of the kids gets in trouble, the other kid's sitting there going, yeah, you had that coming. Now, the kid who gets in trouble, they are all upset. They are so mad. They can't believe it. It's the same thing with us. And the reason is, it, it actually points to something fundamental going on in our heart. In our hearts, we think we know better than God. We think our ideas about right and wrong are more accurate than what he says. We think our ideas about what justice really is, we think it's better than what God says justice is. So when he carries out justice, and we read about a punishment, or we experience a punishment, we want to cry out, hey, injustice. And we actually want to sit in judgment on God. We're, we're people, we only have a few pieces of the puzzle but we want to sit in judgment over the one who he made the puzzle. And our strong feelings about what God says is right and wrong and what he says is a just punishment and what isn't a just punishment, our strong feelings, they really shouldn't surprise us. Because again, with, with my kids, I can't think of a single time where I've had to carry out a consequence for disobedience where my kids have said, you know what, Dad, I'm really grateful that you did that. Thanks for doing that, Dad. I really appreciate that. I mean, even when I pulled the leaf out of my son's mouth yesterday, what's he doing? No! Cohen, you can't eat this. We don't know where it came from. We don't even know. We don't know anything about this. You can't do this. And the reason is, the reason they fight me or fight their mom and the reason they complain and they get so upset is, again, they think they know better. My two-and-a-half-year-old and my four-year-old, they think they've got a better sense of what's just and what's unjust than I do. They think they have a better understanding of what's safe and what's dangerous and what's right and what's wrong. So when we do this and we actually, we we make the boundary and then we enforce it, it's really not that surprising that they get so upset because, I mean, frankly, the two-year-old thinks they know better than me. So for you and I, just because we get so upset and just because we feel strongly that what we find in the Bible is unjust, that doesn't mean that we're right. 
I mean, just like when we were two, we can feel really passionate about something. We can be really convinced on an issue of what justice is and be wrong, just like we were when we were two. Again, we've, we've only got a few pieces of the puzzle, and yet we're looking at the one who created the puzzle, and we're convinced that, oh, he's wrong. He's got it wrong. He's not doing it right. So who, who has the final say on, on if the punishment matches the crime? Well, God's the ultimate authority. And then this brings us to the final question. And the final question is, how do all these punishments fit with Jesus? How in the world does this fit with Jesus? And there's no denying when you start reading the New Testament that there's been a change. You sit down and you, you read through the Old Testament and then you shift and you read the New Testament, you're not going to find as many severe punishments. I mean, there's a few stories, you know, when you get into the book of Acts and the church is getting started, there's a few stories of severe punishment, but overall, there's been a change. So the question, well, well why the change? Well, the answer is, the reason for the change is because the Old Testament doesn't give us all the pieces of the puzzle. It's not until, until Christ shows up and then the New Testament authors start writing their letters and sending them out to the churches. It's not until that happens that we get the full picture of the puzzle. Those were the final pieces needed to understand really what's going on. That means for you and me, if we're going to sit down and we're going to try to figure out, okay, what's going on in the Old Testament and what applies to us today, it has to be viewed through the lens of what the New Testament says. It has to be viewed through the lens of what the New Testament reveals. Jesus talks on this. He says this in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament. He says, hey, don't think that I've come to get rid of it. We're not throwing it out. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, I've come to complete the picture, to take it from just here are the commands to help you understand, okay, here's, here's the reasons behind the commands. And now that, I've, now that I've come, here's how you're supposed to live in light of those commands. Here's how those commands speak to your life. And this is why we don't ignore the Old Testament. Actually, the Old Testament still stands. But the Old Testament needs to be viewed in light of Christ's fulfillment and what the New Testament says. The Old Testament actually, this, this is uncomfortable, the Old Testament actually applies to us today. I mean, it's full of God's wisdom and his will on specific topics and how he wants us to live. It is full of timeless ethical and moral principles that cannot be ignored. I mean, yeah, there are some laws in there. You know, if you want to get down and really get nitty-gritty and debate it, there are some laws in there that because of what Christ has done, yeah, we don't apply those today. And yeah, those don't speak directly to us. But overall, it still stands. It's still God's word. It's still God's will and his revelation. It just has to be read through the lens of the New Testament. And what you find is, how does this fit with Jesus? How do, these old, how do all these punishments fit with Jesus? Is the New Testament completes the picture. The New Testament gives us the final pieces so that we understand what's going on. And something that's overlooked in the Old Testament, because a, a lot of people's objections to the Bible, again, they're found in the Old Testament. But something that's overlooked in the Old Testament is there's a, there's a thread of mercy. There's a stream, a string of mercy that runs through the entire Bible. I mean, in those, at the beginning, I read three, three instances where the death penalty was called for, three situations. And actually, in the Bible, there are 16 offenses. In the Old Testament, there are 16 offenses where the death penalty is called for. And in all but one, there's an opportunity for the offender, for the guilty party, to receive mercy. All but one. The only exception was premeditated murder. 
or what we would call in our system first-degree murder. That was the only exception. Every other situation, the guilty party could have a ransom given. They could be forgiven. They could receive mercy over and over again. I mean, we, people look at it and they say, oh, God is so harsh. I can't believe that he would do this. But again and again and again, he's saying, hey, a substitute can be given. You add it all up and you realize that, okay, God's providing a way for a ransom to be provided. And that ransom, all that in the Old Testament, all that mercy, it actually points straight to Jesus and what Jesus did. And this is why the New Testament says about Jesus that he gave his life as a ransom for all people. He's the ultimate payment all through the Old Testament. Even with all these harsh punishments, all it's doing is it's pointing, okay, eventually God is going to provide a way for everyone, even the worst offenders, to be forgiven. And it points straight to Christ. And that actually brings us to what is the hardest to stomach teaching on punishment in the Bible. And it's actually not found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. And it's a teaching on punishment that applies it directly to you and directly to me. It puts it on our heads and says what we deserve. What it is, it says this in Romans 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Now, we all know what a wage is. A wage is something you earn. You go to work and you do your job and you earn money. You earn a living. That's your wage. It says the wages of sin. It's saying that, hey, what we all have earned, what we all deserve is death. Death, when it talks about death, it's not just talking about physical death. It's saying eternal separation from God, the unpopular idea of hell. That's what it's saying. It's saying we've all earned this. And it's not because we've done a certain number of sins or because we did sin that fell into this specific category. It says any sin, all sin, every sin, just one sin. For the wage of just one sin, it's death. And usually when you and I think about sin, we have a different understanding than God has about sin. We, we know there's stuff that we shouldn't do, but we think, oh, well, I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't say that, or I know I shouldn't act this way, or I know I shouldn't think that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just not that big a deal. That's usually how we view sin, but that's very different than how God views sin. You know, when I was growing up, in the neighborhood I grew up in, there were a lot of other boys my age in the neighborhood, and so we would do what, you know, elementary and junior high boys do at night, and you know, the, you know, our parents would go to bed, and we would all act like we were asleep, and then we'd know, okay, okay, at this time, we're all going to sneak out, and so we'd sneak out of our houses, and we'd go just like randomly toilet paper people in the neighborhood, or doorbell ditch, and just, you know, cause havoc. I mean, that's, you know, kind of what junior high boys do, so we would be doing that, and we had this one neighbor in the neighborhood, and we never really questioned why he was always awake. I mean, maybe he was like guarding his house or something, but he always seemed to be awake, and he would just sit on his front porch in his rocking chair, and he would see us, you know, you know, I mean, you know it's suspect when a 12-year-old runs by with a 24-pack of toilet paper. I mean, you just know, like, something's up. He would see us do this, and he would just kind of, you know, shake his head, and every once in a while, he would yell at us, or, you know, maybe, like, tell our parents, like, oh, yeah, it was actually your boys that did it, blah, blah, blah. But most of the time, he just kind of looked at us, and it was just kind of like, well, kids are going to be kids. And we really think that God's kind of up in heaven on the front porch of heaven, sitting in his rocking chair, looking down on the sin of the world, just kind of, mm, I wish they wouldn't, but humans will be humans. I mean, we think that that's the approach that God takes, but what does the verse say? It says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is far worse than we think it is. And because God is a holy God, he doesn't just look at our sin and say, well, I wish they wouldn't. No, it, it deserves a response. A response is needed for violating God's law. 
It's rebellion against God. That's why the consequence is death. That's why it's eternal separation from him. That's why it's a wage that we've all earned from our actions. It is far worse than we think it is. So then what, what does a holy and merciful God do in response to the punishment that we deserve? That actually brings us to the second part of the verse, which says this. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's God's gift. His gift is that he took on the punishment we all deserve so that we could choose to live a new life. And you know what? That's actually the most shocking part of the Bible. The most shocking part of the Bible is not that there are punishments and not that there are severe punishments. That's really not that shocking if you sit down and think about it. But the most shocking part of the Bible is that God himself would take on the punishment that we deserve so that we could choose him and then we could live a new life. That is by far the most shocking part of the Bible. All the laws in the Old Testament, they show the standard of this holy God, a standard that all of us have violated. And all the punishments, they reveal just how serious the violation is. We've all sinned. We all deserve the same thing. We all have violated God's standard. And he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't look at it and say, oh, I wish they wouldn't, but you know, humans will be humans. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't brush it aside. He responds to it. Otherwise, that would violate his holiness. And so Jesus came. God the Son took on a human body, came here, lived among us. While he was here, his message was freedom and forgiveness can be found. I'm here as a ransom. I'm coming telling you that if you repent, this is what you deserve, but if you repent, a new life can be found. And then he went to the cross and he hung on that cross and took all of our sin on him as our ransom for what we all deserve. Like the verse says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift was a ransom, a perfect ransom that could cover all of us. And just like it says, it says that it's a gift. And because it's a gift, that means that it can be freely accepted or it can be rejected. And so what that means for you and me is whether you are under the law with all of its punishments facing you or whether you're under mercy and all that that means, it actually comes down to how you respond to the offer of that gift. Do you accept the offer of mercy, the ransom paid for the punishment that you deserve? Or do you say, no, nope, I'm good. I know better. I can figure it out on my own. I actually don't need that. That's actually the most shocking part of the Bible, that God himself would come as our ransom. Not that there's punishments, not that they're severe, but that Jesus would die on the cross as our substitute for the punishment that we all deserve. Like the verse says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that in your plan, you never planned to leave us on our own in the mess that we've made. But all through the Bible, there's the thread of mercy that points to the fact that Jesus came and he gave his life as a ransom, a substitute in our place. And I thank you for the fact that it's a gift given. It's not something we earn because we're good. It's not something that certain people deserve because of what they've done and other people don't. It's something you freely give to all. 
Father, for those of us that have accepted that gift, I pray that our heart would be one of gratitude, crying out, thank you, thank you, thank you. God, for those who haven't, I pray that they would examine the facts, they would explore the pieces of the puzzle, and they would come to the conclusion that this is true and that Jesus did give his life as a ransom. We thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.